Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. Now, I feel like I've been saying this for the second episode in a row, but this is a different approach to the podcast, and for good reason. This episode is focused on discussing anti-science, you know, the deniers of scientific theories and the conspiracy theorists of the world. In this episode, we will discuss some of the common scientific theories that are denied by some and go over the arguments these deniers typically present, as well as the major conspiracy theories we hear and see today. My guests and I will dive into the definition of science and how it works, along with touching on the neuroscience, statistics, and psychology behind conspiracy theorists. Then, to round out the episode, we will talk about how you can deconstruct or at least identify an illogical argument. To help me with these topics, I look no further than Eric Peterson. Eric, aka Planet Peterson, is a high school science teacher and content creator from California. He is best known for his flat earth debunking videos, random knowledge videos, and debates with science skeptics on TikTok. Originally from South Dakota, Peterson moved to California in 2019 just before the pandemic began. What started as a way to avoid boredom during the COVID lockdown, his online teaching has turned into a passion with 150,000 followers and counting. Peterson's goal is not just to educate people about science, but also teach them how to think critically and logically. It is his strong opinion that a lack of critical and logical thinking is responsible for much of the science denialism that we see in society today. You can find his content on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Planet Peterson. So now that you've been introduced to my guest star and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into our first segment where we will dive into the denials and conspiracies. Cheers. Eric, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I've been admiring from, I guess, a close and afar at the same time with what you do uh, on TikTok and TikTok Live. It's It's been a, a fun journey just watching yeah. some of the lives and uh, not only getting laughed, but also getting a sense of education in terms of logical arguments and also getting exposed without having direct exposure to what, say, an opposing argument might be in terms of what we're going to address in the first segment, which is talking about objective truths or things that have been talking about like what science has come to a consensus on. And then the latter portion of the segment being more towards the conspiracy end of things. So I think we're just going to start here with the objective truths and talk about some of the common misconceptions. Maybe we could go through this one at a time. And I know you have a bunch of misconceptions that I'm sure that you could enlighten the audience yeah. with. So how about you start us off? Sure. So I do TikTok lives and I have a little banner that says um, just a list of scientific facts. I don't know. I don't really use the term objective truth very often. I'm not sure if there really is objective truth, but the scientific method still does inform us about true facts about how to describe the world. So the most common arguments I get are people telling me that Earth is flat. It's not as common, but recently the idea that Earth is hollow uh, or that we live inside of Earth. So some people think the Earth is, is a globe, but it's hollow inside. And the North and South Poles, there are holes there. You can go in them. And Admiral Byrd, for example, saw the holes. Other people think that Earth is hollow and we live on the 
inside surface of it, which that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I've been hearing that lately. Uh, people tell me evolution isn't true. Not only that it doesn't happen, but it's like literally physically impossible for evolution to be true. That's always fun. The Big Bang never happened. What's hilarious about that is most of the people that tell me they don't believe in the Big Bang, they actually do believe it because they don't know what the Big Bang is. And then I tell them, so do you think <laughs> the universe expands or not? And they go, yeah, well, you believe in the Big Bang. then, <laughs> And then they'll double down and say, no, I don't. Creationists, they'll believe that evolution doesn't happen and the Big Bang didn't happen, but also that Earth is only a few thousand years old. That's a new one. And then climate change, I get I get a few of those. It's not super common. It's probably because I don't think I have it in my banner mm. anymore, but those are the most common ones for me. Yeah. And I probably shouldn't have prefaced with objective truth. Maybe it's just based on what science has brought us with a rich amount of of data in terms of, and we'll talk about that later on how science works mm -hmm. and go through my understanding from what I've been told is there's different types of truths. And whenever I say objective, I just mean it as something that has, it has way more confirmation and is true kind of no matter what you think it is. It's not like a personal thing. It's something that just is part of reality or what reality tells us at least because the universe has no obligation to make sense to us, but yet right. we're just trying to, right? It's just something that yeah. we innately want to do. I mean, I get some of that too, based on my, my platform, but you, I mean, you take it head on. <laughs> yeah, for, I, for I welcome all dissent. That's actually kind of the point. Is there a reason why you took the climate change off your list? I think I just kind of got bored of it a little bit because I've switched stuff up. I used, I sometimes I'll put up there, you don't have free will. But every time I do that, that becomes like the dominant one. I think actually nobody ever really talked about it. It's happened a few times. But it was so rare that I was like, well, I only have so much real estate above my head. So yeah. I got I to fill it with stuff that's going to make people go, oh, yeah. <laughs> No, that makes sense. And, and honestly, most of the time when people want to have a conversation about like climate change, there's like two axioms that they have. And that's that, you know, well, it's snowing outside. Well, you have a misconception of what climate is yeah. and what weather mm -hmm. is. And then the other one is, well, climate help happens in cycles. It's like, yeah, true. I mean, we could talk about anthropogenic or we could talk about natural climate change. Both are happening. And here's the data. This is something that I try to say often is that we tend to view the world through the lens of our own experience. Yeah. So that goes to what you said earlier, like Trump famously tweeted on New Year's one year, they're supposed to have record breaking cold temperatures in New York on New Year's Eve. We need some of that climate change, right? <laughs> so like the idea that whatever's happening to you is the state of the world. That's common in many ways, uh, it's it's very common with the climate change thing. But, you know, that's a bias that that everybody has. Well, some people have it more than others, but that's a pretty common one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people can't think in global terms. And that's normal, too. We don't think in, I think, uh, I think it was Steven Pinker in one of his books. He has a really great quote that says, people don't think in data or algorithms. We think in stories. And the simpler the story, the more effective it is. So just yeah. saying, a lot of the debates I have with people, there's a really great quote from uh, John Locke where he says, broad generalizations make good debate points, but it can't discover unknown truths or help the mind in its search for knowledge. But 
that's just what comes more naturally to us. And then the other thing with climate change denialism, they just say things like they call people who think that climate change is real arrogant. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but they say things like you think that humans can impact the planet and that's ridiculous. But they don't think beyond that. It's just the talking point. So, you know, I'll always mm-hmm. say to them, do you agree that greenhouse gases exist? And it's like 50-50 on what they're going to say to that. And then I go, okay, well, we know that there are almost twice as many of them as there were about 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I don't get how you can say that it definitely can't affect the climate, you know. But then there are other people that just like they refer like to scripture or whatever, because I think it says something like the earth will abide and there will always be four seasons and stuff like that. So that's not true. And that's not even true in itself because there's a lot of places don't have four seasons. (laughs) Yeah. If you live in the, if you live in the rainforest, then no, you get, you get a rainy season and a a hot, wet season and a hot, less wet season. Yeah. Uh, That's there aren't, there definitely aren't four of them. Um, That's, that's usually not an argument that I hear. It's just like, it's impossible for us to impact the climate. But what's really tricky about the climate change debate is that people that deny it, they will hijack the honesty of the other party. Bill Nye pretty famously went on Tucker Carlson's show and Tucker Carlson asked him questions like, specifically how much of the temperature change is due to human activity? And that's basically an unanswerable question. Although I think you could probably say virtually all of it because Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that we are responsible for 100% of the temperature, but probably close to 100% of the change of the temperature. But that's just the thing with climate. It's so unbelievably complex that we could never possibly attribute like, uh, what was that? Hurricane Harvey, which broke all the world records for like rainfall in Texas in 2017, I think that was. We cannot definitively say that that would have been a category three hurricane if the industrial revolution never happened, you know, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I certainly don't regret the industrial revolution. (laughs) No, but we, we can't do that. But we know, like our climate models tell us that we know that when you add energy to the atmosphere, then you can expect more of these kinds of events. There's more energy. So you should expect Mm -hmm. to see more rainfall and this and that, but we'll never be able to pinpoint the exact ones. And probably like in the media, if you watch two parties debate that, if it's like on the news or something, they're both going to be extremely dishonest. The climate change you know, believer is going to be very reluctant to engage with that because that's the reality of it. And then, like I said, that can just be hijacked by the other side. So it's kind of unfortunate. Back to your point about like how we we don't know it definitively and we can't put like a lot of definitive numbers on things. I mean, it's based on the relativity of wrong, right? We're we're trying to model these things on our best guess with the data that we have. Uh, we have a lot of data on it, but are we going to be 100% accurate? No. I was talking to a climate scientist He's in his PhD track, and he specifically works on climate modeling. And I had an episode with him. We talked for like two hours. And we were talking about how they take all these different ice cores, dendrochronology. They have rocks, rock sampling, uh, so geocores, all of these different things that they pull together and make these models. And they put together these uh, trends between you know, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, a million years, uh, all mm-hmm. the way back you know, it can be a hundred million years. And what they do is they look at these glacial and interglacial periods. And then you can kind of say, what he was saying is that because of what anthropogenic climate change has done is it has erased the trend line of the interglacial period and has now zeroed it out. 
So it has completely changed the trajectory of what the natural climate was supposed to be doing. So that's where you can say humans are 100 plus percent effective towards climate change. So you can understand the trends, but you're not going to definitively define an answer in all cases, but we can kind of interpret it in certain ways. Moving on from climate change, I'm sure you face a lot with this one, but like in terms of evolution, I know I get a lot of like the scientific misfires in the past. Like, have you ever heard of the one of like the Piltdown Man? That's a pretty famous quoted one. Yeah, that was an actual scientific hoax. Um, Mm -hmm. What's sort of maddening about that is you can find a case where science, well, so the scientific method, like it's fallible people who make errors when conducting the scientific method. And it's, and it's fallible people who have agendas that I wouldn't call the Piltdown man, even science. It it was just, it was a forgery. It was was a guy who faked something. And I don't know if that guy was an actual paleontologist or anything like that. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but what's like maddening about this is, do you know what process figured out that Piltdown man was a hoax? The scientific process. Yeah. The the scientific method corrects its own errors. Who among you is willing to tell me that your alternative, like spiritual or religious, whatever explanation has errors and forgeries in it? Absolutely nobody is willing to do that. But they agree that others have done that. And they'll agree that for the most part, the sun doesn't orbit the earth, even though people that held their exact same beliefs centuries ago thought that. So it's like, when a system can correct its own errors, that shows accountability. But to them, mm-hmm. they're like, no, that means that it's fallible and imperfect. And then they'll just say wrong in general. Whereas my dogmatic beliefs, because they're dogmatic, according to me, are always right. And there's no justification for the alternative unless you just want to believe it. And so I guess it's just a quick example of how they're trying to point fingers at science. But then at the same time, they don't realize that, that science solved the problem. Yeah, it's it's not intellectually consistent at all. So, yeah, yeah with with evolution, uh, hardly anybody ever brings that specific one up. I mean, I get oh. I get people that just tell me that all the bones either don't exist or are made up. Like some people think that the fossils, the fossils, first of all, are rocks. They're not actually bones, except for right. like what we dig out of the La Brea tar pits in L.A. and and there and some frozen mammoths. Uh, those are are those really fossils? Kind of. They're classified in a different way. But I get people that tell me that they just cut the rocks to look that way. And that's like, that is so silly. Or that they don't exist at all. Like I one very loud, angry man told me, you ever seen a fossil at a museum? Yes. No, you haven't. They tell me they're in the back room. If you want to look at them, you're not allowed to. Well, sometimes yes, but other times no. I mean, they're they're precious and rare. No, that just so that's the proof that the whole thing is fake. Um <laughs> so, it's just because I mean, they don't want you to be exposed to their fossils and, and ruin yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's actually a justifiable reason. Or, you know, people they'll say, Yeah, I mean, we got the fossils and all this, but but evolution doesn't happen. People will tell me that evolution is like statistically impossible. I had a guy not that long ago, I, I just uploaded a video about this on my TikTok actually, and he just said, like, you know, there were all these scientists and they said that. The odds of, usually they mischaracterize how evolution even would happen, but they say like the odds of a fully formed cell just forming out of nowhere, which is not what evolution or the scientific method has ever said is how it occurs. 
but we'll just grant them that. Uh, that the odds of that are like one with a, a hundred zeros after it or whatever. And I said, okay, even if that's true, what are the odds of a miracle taking place? Because that's zero. What are the odds that literally a mud man named Adam formed and then his wife was formed from a piece of him? What are the odds of that happening? Because it's zero. You can believe believe it, but it has to be a miracle with a, with a probability of nothing. So again, it's just like you're, you're not using this with your own like belief system, which so like no naturalistic explanation in principle can ever be less likely than you know, some sort of supernatural, miraculous alternative. And nobody really seems to get that. It's also, I never hear that talked about by anybody. And I'm not here to like tell you that your religion is wrong. It's just, I'm just here to tell you that evolution isn't statistically impossible, right? I I don't care if you believe in a Garden of Eden or whatever, but don't say that evolution is statistically impossible when that's not the case. So a lot of this has been debunked and is continuing to be debunked by Professor Dave, who has just a really awesome YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. Because there, there are people that will say like, well, the odds of they'll take a protein in the human body or, or whatever, and they'll say the odds of that protein spontaneously forming are, and they'll like calculate it. And like, there hasn't even been enough time in the universe for that to have occurred. And their statistical model might be correct, but they're forming it in a way to make it that way. Because first of all, proteins can change I'm trying to think of how to do this without explaining the actual specifics. If I took the CK off of the end of a word and just had a K, we would still know that that word says like black, for example. It'd be spelled wrong, but the message would still be there. It's kind Mm -hmm. of analogous to that. It completely ignores the idea of gradualism, which is kind of one of the hallmarks of evolution that, no, we don't get the proteins or the organisms of today just fully formed out of a random chemical process. They gradually formed in such a long period of time and in such a way that all these things can really happen. So you just kind of manipulate the way it's talked about. I think it was Mark Twain who said, there are lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics, you know? <laughs> so they're kind they're kind of doing that. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because I think they forget about the amount of time it takes for things to, you know, change <laughs> through evolution. For instance, like it took almost 4 billion years for life to assemble and become complex or multicellular. Fast forward 600 million years, give or take, and we're here. So it doesn't happen overnight. And yes, you are absolutely correct that, yeah, it is a really small probability to have a genetic mutation. It's extremely small, but it happens over many different instances in one organism of one species that is extremely vast. And then when you have these natural selection events happening, you then sometimes select those genetic mutations and they move on and they build upon that and other genetic mutations happen. So it is it is very unprobabilistic, but the probability is still there for that outcome to happen. And it does happen and we see it. Yeah. Well, there's also like the error that goes like, you're trying to say, how did this specific organism end up evolving? And sure, maybe the odds of that one specific organism having that one specific trait that allows it to survive are extremely low. 
But there are many different ways for organisms to be successful in the environment. The fact of organisms being able to reproduce and survive in an environment is practically inevitable because we have biodiversity and there, there are all kinds of different ways. Like it just so happens that, I don't know, some type of butterfly has this specific camouflage that allows it to blend in perfectly with the environment. What are the odds of that? Maybe extraordinarily low but it could have evolved in all kinds of different ways and it could have occupied a different niche in the environment. Maybe instead of living on the bark of a tree, it lives on the ground. It would have to look completely different to live there. And it's just the random idiosyncratic changes that happened and then magnified over the generations that allowed it to live in the lifestyle that it does. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, For the most part, it's just a complete ignoring of the idea of gradualism and things like that. And then there's the classic, Show me one example where a dog turned into a cat. Well, (laughs) it's never happened, nor do any evolutionary biologists say that that could happen in principle. Mm -hmm. But what they mean by that, at least I think, is uh, show me an example where one species turned into another. And you can be honest and say, well, that's not observable, although it has arguably been observed. Like Peter and Rosemary Grant saw a brand new type of finch evolve on Daphne Major. But then they'll say, oh, but it's still a finch. It's like, okay, so what you meant is a completely different kind of organism evolving into a different kind of organism. That is unobservable, but of course it's unobservable because a human being cannot live for hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah. So then what you want to do is you want to ask them, if something cannot be seen directly by a human, does that mean that we should assume it's not a thing that can happen? Because obviously that makes no sense. What I always try to do is ask these people questions that takes their logic and apply it to something else and demonstrate that they believe in a contradiction. So I'll say like, I have a really hilarious series of videos where I ask a guy who built the Great Wall of China, the Chinese. How do you know that? Were you there? Uh, We have evidence for it. Well, we have evidence that organisms evolve like our genomes, right? If humans and chimps have a common ancestor, then we should see enormous genetic similarities between us. Look at that. That's exactly what we find. And he just was like, nah, that doesn't prove anything. I was like, well, I agree that we can't have absolute proof of anything. But like, do you know what the evidence would look like, how to interpret the evidence, and then draw rational conclusions from it? Or like atoms. Nobody can see atoms. In fact, it's like fundamentally impossible to literally see an atom, like the (laughs) nucleus, for example. But people don't disagree that they exist. We have scientific models, which are called theories. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't a fact, it wouldn't be called a theory. Except you believe in all kinds of scientific theories as facts, like the existence of atoms. You disagree about evolution. It's all scientific theory. Nobody's ever seen a proton. They never will. Or a neutron. Or an electron. Or the nucleus. But we've devised experiments where we can confirm those models. And there's things we're still learning about it. The composition of protons, famously, like last year, there were some computer or uh, machine learning techniques that told us, eh, maybe the protons are actually uh, a little bit different than we thought. But it's still a positively charged subatomic particle in the nucleus. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the basis of evolution comes from biology, and that means that you discredit biology. And if you discredit biology, you're discrediting chemistry, and if you're discrediting chemistry, you're discrediting physics. So what does physics do? It's the basis of what we understand in reality. You can't just deny one thing and then say everything else is okay. 
you can if you don't think about it. That's fair. <laughs> For the people who want to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, like, I would agree, but they don't agree. What do you usually say for people that want to come on and talk about round earth versus flat earth versus the uh, Taurus? Is it is it the Taurus that they that they go with? The, the donut? That, the donut, yeah I, yeah. I get that comment a lot, but those are all just globies <laughs> that are joking. I also get uh, dinosaur, chicken nugget shaped, and triangle shaped. Those are the most common ones that people don't really mean, but they're all, they're all really funny. So... Arguing with flat earthers is extremely frustrating, and I learned how to do it in a completely different way, which is probably the non-intuitive way, but it's the most effective way by far, both for creating hilarious content and driving home the point. One thing is when you're talking to a flat earther, don't talk about whether or not we've been to the moon or have been to space, because that's actually completely irrelevant. Like Eratosthenes never went to the moon and he calculated the circumference of the earth, assuming it's a sphere like two and a half thousand years ago. With great so, accuracy. With Yeah, with pretty good. He was probably only off by like 15%. Yeah. So whether or not we've been to space is, is irrelevant. So that immediately gets rid of more than half their arguments because their arguments are, so you believe in the moon landing, huh? You know that Stanley Kubrick and what's his name were meeting and the Warner von Braun was, we took him over from Nazi Germany and on his tombstone, it says something about the firmament and every picture you've ever seen is CGI, even though CGI didn't exist in the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Uh, don't engage with that at all because it's completely irrelevant. I don't even try to convince them that the earth is, a, I mean, I sort of try to convince them that the earth is a globe. What I really do is point out that there is no flat earth model. It has no explanatory value. It can't predict things. And it's riddled with all kinds of contradictions and logical absurdities. So what I do is I tell them, explain to me, according to your model, why a sunset occurs. And they'll say, because when something gets farther away, it gets smaller. So eventually the sun just disappears. It's like, okay, great. Here's the problem with that. The sun doesn't just become a smaller and smaller circle that becomes a point of nothingness. Right. It never changes size at all. And, you know, when you watch the sunset, this isn't a circle, but whatever. When you watch a sunset, it doesn't shrink to nothingness. Yep. Also, are the stars farther away than the sun? Yes. But we can see the stars at night. That's because they're brighter than the sun. Then during the day, <laughs> we would be able to see the stars. No, because they're farther away. But when objects get far away, you can't. So it falls apart completely. That's how you know you have a model that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. It contradicts itself, right? So that's just one example. That's fair. You're just breaking down their argument or wanting to yes. hear their logic and then breaking that down rather yeah. than you trying to pour out the monumental amount of evidence that we have for a round earth. And, and that could probably mm -hmm. go with, with most conspiracy theories because that is you know the round earth versus flat earth the flat earth is a conspiracy not a you know i don't know it kind of falls in between the denial and the conspiracy in in that so we might as well just talk about conspiracies since we're yeah, here flat earth, is, flat earth is weird like people that don't believe in evolution it's for some of them it's conspiratorial because they think it's you know chinese paid liberal Democrat Satanists that are trying to plug it into the educational system so that they can make everybody gay and then the world will end. Something pretty close to that. 
Um, wow. But really, it's it's more just it doesn't jive with their faith or whatever, and it doesn't make intuitive sense to them. So flat Earth, like it's kind of like a fuzzy border. It's not like a JFK thing, and it's not quite like an evolution thing. It's in the middle in a weird way. We'll talk about this, but like with the flat Earth thing, if you ever find yourself talking to these people, this is hard to do. But what you have to do is agree not to talk about things where the other person can just go no, uh, because like you could tell them. We went to the moon. Do you agree with me? No. Okay. Well, let's just talk about something that neither one of us can deny, right? Like the fact that the sun really does do that. Mm -hmm. Neither of us can disagree about that. It's impossible to. So those are the only kinds of things you should talk about when you're when you're talking to a flat earther. That's that's a fair point. Just getting back to the roots, the objective, the truths, the reality of of things, and and agree mm -hmm. upon that. And that might make them rethink what they have a stance on, possibly. <laughs> but since we're kind of like teetering on that on that aspect towards the conspiracy realm of things, do you have any people that come on and want to talk to you about certain conspiracies? I mean, you already kind of touched upon it with with uh, baking the moon landing, but do you have any others yeah. that kind of come out like how uh, that would work? Not typically. I try to just steer the conversation away from politics, but like it does happen. The, the moon landing one is a big one. I've had in my discussions about climate change had people say like it's just a big money grab i was like how much money do you think the oil companies make because it's it's so much more than the solar panel companies make like and yeah. it's subsidized mm -hmm. like if you believe in a conspiracy then talk about the group that is subsidized by the government mm -hmm. you're anti-government right aren't, aren't you like a right-wing figure okay well the status quo you're defending is in bed with government so like how on earth do you square that with with anything that you that's just yeah. Silly, yeah if they even care about like people they should even look into the statistics of how many people die per kilowatt hour of fossil fuels versus other alternatives i mean that is something that they could easily go on a rabbit hole with yeah i mean the yeah. data doesn't matter you, you can't yeah. you can't rationalize somebody out of a position that they use their emotions you can't rationalize your way out of an emotional opinion. That's so, a fair point. Unfortunately, yeah. Do you guys ever talk about um, about aliens or anything like that? I mean, you can get into a good statistical analysis with people, <sighs> but most of the time it's it's just based on conspiracy. Like, oh, aliens are already here. You know, we're we're keeping alien hardware at Area 51 and the government's lying to us. Like, do you ever get into any of that? I very recently have had several of those. Um, I talked to a guy on my YouTube channel, Planet Peterson. Um, it's a video. It's not from too long ago. It just says, oh, yeah, this guy saw a UFO. I uploaded it three weeks ago. That's that's the title of the video. And he's part of this like weird kind of religious cult. It has a name. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's been popular for, for many decades. But I'm getting people who... Maybe you know, I don't remember. Is I don't think it's the Anunnaki, but maybe it's the Anunnaki and there's some other group that I don't know. It's like something the ancient Egyptians or Assyrians or Babylon or somebody believed in. And they oh they insist that those are were aliens and they have oh. like alien technology and stuff like that. I have had several of those conversations fairly recently, and they're just kind of weird. Like you ask them for their evidence. They don't have evidence. They have claims. That's that's another huge thing 
that yep. is common across every single one of these debates I have is you're not really arguing from a standpoint of evidence. You're just making the claims, right? So like I, I claim that aliens helped build the pyramids. Well, where, what's your evidence? Well, like they couldn't have done it themselves. It's like, okay, well, that's not evidence. That, that's an argument from incredulity or. Yeah, definitely. That's the fundamental basis of, of anything that we would talk about here in this entire podcast is that if you want to change my mind, show me the evidence that would make yeah. me go against the consensus of the scientific community in which I don't even have to study. Say like, I'm not a biologist. I know physics and engineering, but I can trust the consensus of the biological community to tell me evolution and genetics and, and, and just this sort of a taxonomy that we have created. So I just need evidence. And if you can't provide me with evidence, I'm not changing my opinion. I don't think people are immune to evidence. I mean, some people, it won't make a difference, but overall it has to make a difference because we're definitely less ignorant than we were a long time ago. You know, I've never discovered anything. I doubt you have either, right? Nope. <laughs> no, nobody does. But I know <laughs> so many more true facts about the world than the smartest person alive did 100 years ago, probably. Yep. And that that's true for your average idiot today too. So the j just centering the conversation around evidence it it makes a difference so yeah that's Definitely. that's what i try to focus on too one funny uh it's kind of along the conspiracy lines but i was talking to a, a flat earther a few days ago and mm -hmm. i i said something to the effect of like 99 percent of the population doesn't believe this and i just made that number up obviously <laughs> i mean we do that all the time there's the hilariously ironic quote, 86% of all statistics are made up on the spot, you know, which I just made up on the spot. Yep. But he, he got super, he was fixated on that. He's like, where'd you get that number from? Because when I log on to CNN, the highest number I can find is 85%. I was like, okay, two things. One, so still the vast majority of people don't agree with you. And then I would not let him off the hook. I was like, did you just cite CNN, the mainstream media? I, I think I don't think he realized the catastrophic error that that was for part of his in-group to, to do that. But mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just like I just kept being like, wow, so you believe what the mainstream media says, huh? Cause and that's a like a good thing that we could follow up to is, you know, you weren't saying that, like, yeah, we are technically a lot smarter than like the smartest people 100 years ago. But at the same time with the amount of information that's out there, there's also an insurmountable amount of misinformation. There's a lot of people out there that don't know how to source correctly. They're sourcing CNN for a statistic. First of all, if you really want to go back to like high school or college and, and write a paper, would you be okay with one of your students citing CNN on their paper? Or would you rather them go to CNN, look and see who they're citing off of, and then go right. to that person that stated that statistic and then say, okay, this person said the statistic because they have this initiative or they're in this organization. Now, if they're coming from some Christians group for education, would you say that that's very credible? I don't know. It just depends on their motive and what they're talking about. So you have yeah. to kind of dig deep whenever you're doing your sources and and coming up with your claims. Yeah, um, I, I have a graduate degree and one of the introductory classes was uh, 
it was called graduate research and design, I think maybe, I don't remember, but I had to write like an academic paper. And I remember we had to write like an introduction to it or something. This was, this was a long time ago. It's hard to remember, but I remember writing my, my intro paper to what my research topic was going to be. And I got it back and the professor was like, this is really good, but it's extremely biased. I was like, but I didn't state my opinion on anything. And this makes your brain just work in a different way. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's a valuable thing and not enough people do it. Not saying everybody should go get a master's degree. That would be stupid. But yeah. so yeah. I remember like writing that paper. My paper was going to be about the effects of digital technology and how it mimics addiction mm. in all kinds of ways. And so I remember I would cite a paper. I would summarize something about a paper talking about like how the brain works. And then I would add a phrase like in modern society, it is very different from the plains of Africa where our species evolved blah, blah, blah. And so my professor would give me my paperback and he would have that crossed out. He'd be like, you can't say this, this is bias. And it just, it was so weird to me because I was like, well, like it's, it's a scientifically, but if you're not summarizing something that you read in the specific research for the specific thing you're looking up, it's not allowed to go in there. And that was, that was hard for me to do. And I think I was thinking like in the, in the natural way, and so that really coached me on how to only stick to, you know, the research you're reading and, and nothing else. You're not allowed to interject anything else in there. That was kind of, that was kind of a wake up call. Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. I want to go back to conspiracies for just a second. Sure. Because I kind of have an idea about this. Like, why does it seem like so many people are conspiracy theorists or whatever? In my mind, I think there are a couple things going on that help explain it. One would be that conspiracies do happen. We know that there are several conspiracies that have become true, like the CIA trying to topple over democratic leaders of other countries, for mm -hmm. example. We're supposed to get some additional dumps of JFK files, so maybe we'll learn something like, you know, the FBI, the CIA, our own government, organizations that the government is involved in, like the sex scandals from the Boy Scouts and the Catholic and the Baptist churches, for example. There are a huge number of true conspiracies. So if we lay out like the top 20 unproven conspiracies or whatever, you can sort of take three positions. All of them are false. All of them are true at least one of them is true. Out of all those possibilities, at least one of them being true is probably the most likely, actually. Mm -hmm. But we don't know which one. 
So the conspiracy theorist sort of isn't married to any of the ideas, but gives credence to all of the ideas. And I don't think it's irrational, but I don't think it's totally logical. And it's not economically, if we can think of our thoughts as like being economic thoughts, just giving credence to all of them doesn't really work. Because if you're playing roulette and you put money on all of them, you'd lose money on all but maybe one or two of them, right? So, you know, you're better off just like sticking with one or choosing none of them. Right. Yeah. So a lot of people like I'm I'm skeptical of pretty much every conspiracy. And people talk to me about this, like especially the UFO people. That's really popular recently. Mm-hmm. They act like I'm a killjoy or I don't want to believe or I'm being a jerk or I'm acting holier than thou or smarter than thou. And it's like, well. <laughs> Not really. I'm just choosing to take the economically most sensible position on this, which is if I deny every single one of them, I'm going to be right 95% of the time and I'll get one or two big ones wrong. But overall, I'm in the right. So like economically, statistically, it makes the most sense to be skeptical of. And technically, it's okay to be wrong in that instance, because it's just based on, you know, scientific discovery. And you can just say, hey, I was wrong. We move on. Yeah. So I think that's the difference in skeptical thinking versus conspiratorial thinking, where there's like there's perfectly good justification for thinking that some or many conspiracies are true. But they what it kind of ends up doing is they don't necessarily believe in all of them, but they believe all of them could be true or any of them could be true equals all of them can be true. And those aren't the same thing. There's a really important difference there. But. So yeah. I just wanted to talk about that. No, no. And I think that's it's actually a pretty good segue because it is important to talk about why we have so many conspiracy theorists. And I mean, really, naturally, we are very susceptible to being a conspiracy theorist if you're not taking the approach of what you just said. For example, I think we could really dive into the near the neuroscientific explanations of this, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't really do that. But from my understanding is that the people who are more likely to be a a conspiracy theorist have an abundance of free dopamine in their brain, which is really important to the decision-making processes that we have in our brain. And that's what they've seen in a lot of different uh, cases. Like, for example, they had a certain amount of people come in and do a, a coin flipping test, and then they were associating that with uh, conspiracy theories and they indirectly asked them to find patterns in the coin flips. And right. the people who were associated with believing in at least one conspiracy theory were inadvertently finding patterns that weren't specifically there. And that leads into a correlation of conspiracy theorists' illusory pattern perception and then what a lot of people refer to as Ramsey theory. So if you have, let's just say like a set of probability, like any event that happens in reality has a probability to it, a certain amount of outcomes. And whenever you have a data set large enough, it is inevitable that you're going to have an event or a pattern emerge. And conspiracy theorists are overly wired to find patterns from what the neuroscience is telling us. And that's that's really interesting. interesting. It is very interesting. You know, we probably need people like that in our in society. It's sort of like um, the idea that so like Albert Einstein probably had Asperger's or was probably autistic. A lot of CEOs have dyslexia. 
a lot of geniuses have been somewhere on the spectrum, right? You would never really wish that upon anybody, but sometimes for random reasons, just the way we're wired inspires somebody to think in a different way and, and discover something new. And with the conspiracy theorists, it's probably good for a journalist to be a little conspiratorial minded, right? Because journalism, one of the things it's supposed to do at least is, is to uncover those kinds of things. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably good in a way. That's, that's an interesting study. We're all inclined to find patterns where there are none. That's something that comes up with a lot of the debates I have, like, the pyramids line up perfectly with Orion's belt. I was like, yeah, three dots in the sky, three pyramids, line them up so they don't quite make a perfectly straight line. Even if it's not a coincidence, all it means is some people saw three dots in the sky and then built their pyramids in a three-dot pattern. To the, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. That's the but, same thing with constellations. I mean, that's what we do. Yeah. We anthropomorphize what is in front of us and if you have that thousands of stars in you know a little square box that you can put up it's easy to say that like maybe four of them will align in a rectangle or maybe eight of them will align into what we think is a scorpion it's innately going to happen if the data set is yeah. that huge just obvious people have argued that there are like patterns and stuff in the bible too and it's like the bible probably has about a million words um, how many words are in the I want to know this. I want to know how many. Oh, that's the 783,137. So there's three quarters, a little more than three quarters of a million words in the Bible. And it, I don't know how many pages it is, but it's probably like 1,200 pages or whatever. With that, you could make so many different patterns of course. out of it. And, and people say, like, Isaac Newton wasted his life looking for patterns in the bible um normally people just like quote scripture you know and then they they hyperlink old and new testament together to make connections i haven't really heard a lot of people try to tell me that there are like patterns in it i have heard it before but we never really mm. get into them because i don't care i just i just say it's an enormous book you could make all kinds of patterns out oh, definitely of a famous example of that is actually moby dick and the writer of moby dick is conspirized as the prophet to the death of Princess Diana, because if you align the, the letters in a certain way on a rectangular plane, it's like kill Princess oh, right. Di or something like wow. that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, that I mean, that stuff. Funny enough, tomorrow I will have lived my one billionth second. Ooh. I calculated this months ago and then put an alarm in my phone for it. I got a thing yesterday that my like two day reminder, hey, on Monday, you turn a billion seconds old. It's a little more than 31 and a half years. Yeah. So something that happens tomorrow, I could just be like, this is because of this. And if I, if I mm. sat for long enough about it, I could figure something out, but I'm not going to. Yeah. And, that, and maybe this is a good to also say, because I don't think that I mentioned it whenever I was explaining Ramsey theory or illusory pattern perception, but the illusory kind of part of it is where they're finding patterns that are mutually exclusive. Like they're taking events and they're, and they're mutually exclusive events and tying them together. Exactly with what you just said, like, Hey, it's my billion second tomorrow. What if X, Y, Z people die? Then that must mean that the United States is falling apart. Like those are <laughs> yeah. three totally different things. And then you're making a pattern from them. So like humans, no, not even just humans, our entire lineage of, of hominid, right, have been 
evolving to find patterns to escape danger, uh, understand yeah. what's good for them to eat based on, you know, say like smell or eyesight, any of our sensories, right? We, we look for patterns that make sure things are safe or okay for us to do. And based on some of the neuroscientific things that I've said, that now we also are maybe too good at finding these patterns and sometimes over reach yeah. to find these patterns. And that's where they link where people can fall into being a conspiracy theorist. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe it does. No, um, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, what we could call bias or whatever, it almost hmm. certainly evolved as a survival mechanism because Definitely. believing a rustle in the grass is a lion is better than believing it's the wind, even if that's <laughs> an irrational belief. Because mm -hmm. if it's the wind every time and you were wrong every time, what happened is you got some exercise that you weren't planning on from like running away. But if it's a lion once and you just were like, ah, I don't think so this time, you're dead, yeah. right? So we're hardwired for that kind of thinking, which causes us to deny reality in some respect. So relying on those heuristics, we're sort of like innately cautious. We tend to be skeptics in the sense that we all resist changing our beliefs. I mean, if we were always skeptical, nobody would even believe in anything, probably. Yeah. But once you have a belief, you know, we're all sort of pretty skeptical and cautious about it. But that historically, that's kept us safe. And there's there's nothing wrong with, you know, using heuristics to get through day to day life, especially in a time where the amount of influence a single homo sapiens could have on the world was almost nothing. Mm -hmm. But the world is extraordinarily complicated. It's much more complicated than our biases. Uh, the real world requires sophisticated judgments and our biases lead us astray, and they they also uh, desensitize us to the possibility that we could even be wrong because we we appeal to our in group or our religion or any kind of belief can be identity defining. It doesn't. It's not science versus religion. It, it can be anything. Nationalist pride blinds people to all kinds mm -hmm. of things. And any ideology. A, yeah, any ideology. And there's an enormous mm -hmm. amount of evidence throughout history that. You know, nationalist thinking, for example, led many countries into either collapse or inspired them to do horrific things or, or whatever. That's definitely true. So I think we're going to take a, a quick break. But then when we come back, I think what we're going to do is lump segment two and three together. And we're going to talk about maybe a little bit more about science and statistics and then oh, yeah. talk about breaking down and discussing logical arguments. So stick around. Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. 
So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. All right, we're back. This is, I guess, a, I guess a hodgepodge of segment two and three. We're going to talk about defining science, and then we're going to wrap up and discuss uh, arguments or just kind of breaking down illogical arguments, making uh, a logical argument, et cetera. And uh, Eric's probably the best one for that. Mm-hmm. Let's just get started and talk about how science works. I know we've kind of already touched upon this in segment one, but maybe going over it a little bit more. Maybe you want to start out by explaining what your interpretation of how science works, and then I can kind of throw in my feedback. Sure. So for me, science is just a different way of thinking. Science, it's it's a systematic study of the natural world. There's a methodology behind it. What distinguishes science as different from other truth-seeking disciplines is the fundamental axioms or assumptions are a little bit different. We can get into those later. In science, you collect data, you make these observations, and then you formulate your proposed explanation for what you think is happening. So that's your hypothesis, right? So these are just the middle school, high school, science class level steps of the scientific method. Then if you can, ideally you want to do some sort of controlled experiment, but not everything can be experimented on. Like we can't make black holes, but we've figured out ways to still observe them and collect more data. And then, you know, whatever prediction you had, collecting more sensitive data can tell you if some characteristic or mechanism behind it is then observed, and that can confirm your idea. Or like if you're trying to study animal behavior, it's probably not the best to do it in a zoo or in a cage, because that's not really nature. So you're not really doing the experiment in that case, but you're still collecting data in a methodical way. What's different about science is science generates its own data, right? I've heard people say that science is confirmation bias in a way that almost sounds like it could kind of be true because it's like, well, you know, the scientists, they just confirm everything that they thought in the first place or whatever. Like you have your hypothesis and then you do the test to prove your hypothesis wrong. It's like, well, the experiment is actually designed to disprove the hypothesis. People like uh, Karl Popper, who are like philosophers of science, have argued that science is more about disproving things than proving things, right? So confirmation bias is when you data mine for ideas that conform with an opinion that you had or an idea that you had, right? So you can just ignore all the data that doesn't support you and until you find something that does, and you go, ha But in science, the scientific process creates the data, and then that data is analyzed. And then The big important thing is that data or those experiments are then repeated by other groups because something that can't be independently verified or isn't accessible to third parties can't be considered really objective in any meaningful way. So Mm -hmm. there are probably other things that I'm forgetting, but to me, that's kind of what science is. It makes predictions. So it's it's almost like a prophecy-driven industry in a way. But it's done with, you know, experiments, observations, and then looking at the data. Yeah, uh, most definitely. Uh, I think sometimes, sometimes science works a little differently than that. We sometimes don't have the opportunity to experiment on things first, but we can 
figure out how to mathematically solve something first and then experimentally prove it later and then get total consensus on it. It's always the combination of the three where you have a mathematical yeah. um, a, a mathematical or modeled evidence, then you have your experimental or observation evidence, and then you have clear consensus of the scientific community. Not everybody's going to agree yeah. on your um, tested hypothesis, but if you have the majority of consensus, those are usually what hold true. Like, for example, the Big Bang Theory wasn't always a theory, but it became a theory because it had not unanimous, but the majority of people agreeing with the results. There are still people that had alternative hypotheses to how cosmology takes place or has taken place in this universe. So mm -hmm. most of the time, it is exactly the way that you've laid it out. And it also sometimes it ends up being kind of weird. You're doing work or research on one thing and you get some awkward anomaly and you end up finding something through a fluke and then you test it. Yeah. Other people test it and you come to a consensus on it. You have mathematical modeling and boom, we just found something else. We just found the particle. It just happens that way. But no matter what, no matter what the sequence is, the science is still the same. You still need to have consensus. If you don't have it, it's not something that we can fully utilize moving forward. A commonly used talking point is that consensus isn't science. So like going back to the climate change thing, because this, this is the only one I can really think of, but there's that often quoted stat that 97% of climate scientists agree that humans have an impact on the climate. And so people will argue like consensus isn't science or whatever. It's like, well, there's a lot of things we could say about this. One, so you're obviously threatened by the 97% number. So <laughs> what do you think the number is? Like, do you think it's exactly backwards? No. Okay. Do you really think that it's not more than 50%? Because there's no way that you seriously don't like, let's say it's 90%. Now, oh, they lied. Oh, except it still says that the vast majority of them say it's, it's because of the thing that you're not talking about. But the idea that these are just the scientists' opinions, I was like, no, they're, they're regurgitating the scientifically verified evidence. Mm -hmm. So in a way, consensus is science in a way, like it depends on exactly what you're talking about and, and what you mean, but that talking point is sort of stillborn. I mean, it's, it's dead from the get-go because it just doesn't make right. a lot of sense. Well, the consensus is subjective too. I mean, you don't want, say, a hypothesis of the Big Bang Theory being, you know, analyzed by a construction worker and a nurse. Like you yeah, want, that's, you that's want cosmologists and physicists and people who are in similar disciplines that can apply their own input based on their results from their field. And if you have a collective consensus is better, a better term, or a subjectively collective consensus, you know, uh, then you actually have something in science that is proven. You can't just have a non-subjective consensus. I don't get where the... You just trust the experts on everything. I was like, <laughs> so do you. I mean, like, you know, there, there are some people who are majorly skeptical about medicine, although it's usually just vaccines or whatever. Mm. But like, again, I, I just try to use their own line of thinking against them. I'm like, so when your doctor says that you have a heart murmur, do you say, well, would they teach you that at Princeton Medical School? Yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah, they did, <laughs> which is... 
uh, which is how you know you can trust me. But the colleges are all just part of this mass. But like, this is where it becomes a conspiracy, I, sort of, again, and we don't have to get back into that. But it's like, yeah, the whole idea of academics is something to just thumb your nose at. I really don't get that at all. I don't know where that comes from. I don't have a good explanation for it. I think people outside of science have an issue with like clinging on to names rather than proofs. You know what I mean? Like they they cling on to well, well, well. Newton was wrong about X, Y, and Z. For for example, he thought that only light was in photons and it couldn't be in waves, or that Newton's laws of gravity don't apply everywhere. So it, he was he was wrong. It was false. You know this gravity's false. Well, no, it's just that we can apply Newton's laws of gravity to very simplistic circumstances, but then we need, say, relativistic gravity from Einstein's theory of general and special relativity yeah. to be able to solve more complex problems. I think a lot of these people then don't understand that there's a, an, an essence of change and progression in science and that it changes and progresses Sometimes slowly, but sometimes also really rapidly. And it's hard for any human to keep up with mentally because it does, it can go really fast with technology. That's one thing that we kind of saw with, for say, vaccines in the last two decades. It's hard for people to understand how rapidly we've been able to introduce such a, a new method. It was scary for people. So they end up yeah. like... Kind of, I, we didn't really talk about this, but maybe like whenever you don't understand something, it's really easy to plug and play a very simplistic answer to things to give you comfort. And sometimes science does that. It provides very scary or very complex answers to things. And if you don't have that understanding or you think it's very traumatic to you, it's way easier to just say, well, well, this makes more sense. So I'm going with this avenue and I'm just going to disregard yeah. science. I don't think we talked about that earlier, but the, just the, the influence of traumatic events is, is huge. Yeah, um, or life-changingly positive events, too. Oh, true, you know, true. A lot, a lot of people that convert, they'll, they'll say that it's because their life was not in a good place, and they asked for things to be turned around, and they did, and then they, they attribute it to that, and so they convert to some religion or, or whatever, or... Politics-wise, like I, I grew up in a big city, and I always thought that this party didn't know what they were doing. And then I grew up, and I realized it's the other party that doesn't know anything. I was like, well, first of all, both parties are kind of idiots a lot of the times. But <laughs> um, so I agree, that's probably where a lot of it comes from. Yeah, and uh, one one other thing, I don't know if you get this. Um, maybe you do, but people like to associate science as an ideology or or a religion do you get that at all <laughs> yeah oh okay. no yeah a lot i people tell me you just worship the universe it's like i literally don't worship anything but i agree the idea of worshiping something isn't very productive so you're going to renounce your beliefs right now <laughs> and, and so obviously they don't do that again not consistently applying it to themselves yeah they accuse me of uh, worshiping the universe, worshiping science, worshiping evolution. It makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> People say that evolution is a religion or the Big Bang is a religion because they say that um, it takes more faith to believe that we came from nothing than it does to believe in a creator. I was like, well, I don't know if it's like literally 50, like it can't possibly be 50-50. Because there either is or is not a million dollars under my bed, but it's not a 50-50 thing, right? So there's that. 
first of all, I don't believe we came from nothing. I just don't know. This goes back to what you're talking about a little bit ago. People like we hate thinking that we don't know why the reason behind something. And so that can cause somebody to cling to like, you know, a conspiracy or they just make something up in their head or mm -hmm. they'll go along with something somebody proposed, even though there's not necessarily anything to back it up. Maybe not anything to refute it either, but you know, a proposition is not assumed to be true until it's disproven. That's not how that works. Although you are innocent until proven guilty. It kind of sounds like we're putting the cart before the horse in a lot of this because yeah, it's better actually just to say that we don't know. I mean, we just started doing science couple hundred years ago <laughs> and yeah, you know our species have been around for 300,000 years and um our hominid lineage two to three billion years and then started walking up right six to seven million years ago so we're pretty fresh on the block in terms of trying <laughs> to understand stuff and we're going to be wrong and it's good to just continue to question things that make sense to question and also Try not to jump to conclusions that don't need to be concluded. Yeah. Going back to the science as a religion or certain types of science or religion, um, like this just literally can't be true because a religion necessarily involves the belief in a, a supernatural realm, one or more gods, something like that. And the fundamental assumptions of science are that that does not exist. Science assumes that the natural world is all there is, and it operates according to fixed natural laws. You know, supernatural explanation cannot, in principle, ever be a valid scientific explanation for something. So none of those things can be religions, because uh, like evolution, it doesn't require the, the belief in a miracle. A lot of people mm -hmm. think that statistically unlikely is what a miracle is. And that kind of is like a, a layman's definition for it. It's how the word is used most of the time. But no, like a miracle by definition is an unexplainable supernatural event. And we kind of talked about this already. No naturalistically proposed mechanism can be a miracle because right. it's proposed via a naturalistic mechanism. <laughs> and for, for things that we don't know, like, oh, so then how did the Big Bang happen? I don't know. I'm not trying to tell you. I'm not trying to even give you a hypothesis. I don't know. It's a mislabeling and just a misunderstanding. Like, say you're driving home from work and you, you know, round the corner too hard and, and just barely miss old granny going through the streetlight. So it's not a miracle that you missed the granny. It's actually just a probabilistic event between the road and the tire what's going on in that day, weather-wise, um, mm -hmm. you know, your your handling capabilities and your reaction capabilities. There's no miracle in that sense. It can, it can be explained. Yeah, I don't typically debate astrology, but it has the exact same problem. So like it makes claims and what, what you just outlined there, those are claims, but there's zero explanatory value there because you say the Big Bang is impossible because something can't come from nothing or whatever. I never claimed that that's what happened, but I'm just interested in your explanation. So what did the creator make the universe out of? They never have anything, right? So there is no explanation. So claiming it's a miracle doesn't establish anything because if Jesus really did take the wheel, then how do you do that? How do we know that? How could we ever, and it's fundamentally impossible. So the justification for the belief just has to be because I believe it. And yeah. to me, I just don't think that's super valid 
John Locke, he wrote down a lot of stuff about epistemology. So, you know, he said that, you know, any claim that can't be reduced to its particulars, which just means like described by laws or theories, mm -hmm. and then replicated by others, that can't be science, right? And your subjective experience is inaccessible to outside parties, so it can never be confirmed. Sure, whatever you believe that, like if you believe that something was revealed to you in, in some sort of way, then okay, but there can never be any justification for anybody else to believe it. And you also can't, if that can happen to you, then it can happen to anybody, but they're going to have different kinds of revelations from mm -hmm. you, which is why we have all these different religious beliefs or, or whatever else. Even, you know, there are thousands of different sects of, of Christianity, right? Because they all claim that some sort of unique revelation, like Martin Luther, I don't really know a whole lot about him. I don't know if he thought that his beliefs were divinely revealed to him. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But, you know, and then there's the people that talk to snakes, whatever their deal with that is. So if it's not accessible to other parties, then it could never possibly help us to lead to any sort of truth because whatever the facts are have to be objectively factual. And if there's no mechanism to how we arrive at them, which is unbiased and depersonalized, then we can't call that the truth. And that's another thing that separates science from all these other sorts of things. Like it's, it's depersonalized and unbiased. It's done by biased people. And so like errors can be made, but the methodology mm -hmm. itself finds and corrects those errors. Yeah, no, exactly. That's, that's a way better way I could probably put that. What my understanding is, is that faith doesn't require any evidence. But there's two ways of looking at things, and it's fine. Like, say, you miss Granny, and you say Jesus took the wheel that day. That's fine, and that's your one data point. You're totally okay with saying that. There's nothing wrong with that. But then there's also the objective reality to it is that we had X, Y, and Z parameters, and you could associate that with a probabilistic event and explain it with the laws that we have come up with through science. So there's the scientific yeah. way of looking at it. What I'm trying to say is that faith-based and science are two separate things, and there are two ways of looking at the situation. One has evidence, yeah, one has none. Yeah, they're very different. And, mm -hmm. you know, on the one hand, faith seems sort of innocuous. You're saying like it happened because you prayed for it and it happened or appealing to divine revelation or faith or whatever. On an individual basis, kind of sort of harmless, but it has catastrophic potential for being a justification for how we should organize our lives. You can easily picture some like demagogic figure who's put in charge, like, you know, whoever the leader of the Ayatollah is or... Kim Jong-un in North Korea or whatever, like, luckily, there's not a lot of this that happens in the United States, but I fear that we're heading in that direction and that there's a group of people that are hungry for it. But if you just install this one person, then they're just going to say, well, God told me that we should invade Venezuela and take all their oil or just something ridiculous. I mean, it's happened several times before throughout history. So mm -hmm. that's where it becomes, uh, it's not benign anymore. And so hopefully we can all see where mm -hmm. people can like realize that if one party's going to use it, the other party's going to use it. We have to have some sort of depersonalized objective way of doing things. I'm not saying we should use science to do our politics for us, but it should clearly be a methodology that's behind some of the decisions we choose to make. 
Yeah, I, I greatly agree with that. And, you know, mine was just a super simplistic example that you can apply faith to. But in, in those realms, well, there's way more at stake. There should be, <laughs> you know, an implementation of justification of events. I, I definitely agree with that. And yeah, I mean, history has seen ideologies that have been pushed down by these um, by these figures that then get people to obey by what their commands is due to whatever that ideology that they may follow. And yeah. it, it's very powerful. This is just going to be a funny, ridiculous hypothetical, but I think it still makes the point. But like um, mm -hmm. asserting that our rights are like God-given rights, for example, like the Second Amendment was Jesus's idea or something like that, right? It was ridiculous. But, you know, I hear people talk about that. Like, if you start with that fundamental assumption that they're like God-given rights, Okay, well, then your interpretation of it is your idea of a God, like it's literally divinely inspired. Mm -hmm. So like, it can't possibly not be true. And any violation of it is, is not, it's not just personally insulting. It's like literally morally wrong, right? And then what can happen? Well, you can have people that hold that belief and then take it to the extreme. And so now all of a sudden, um, nuclear weapons are now, you can buy them. If we're going to take the most literal possible approach to this fundamental God-given right, then Jeffrey, uh, he could buy several nukes. And do you want Jeffrey Bezos to have nuclear weapons? Uh, what's he going to do with them, right? Like, I know that's ridiculous, but in principle, hypothetically, that kind of thinking can obviously lead to outcomes that nobody wants, right? So it's, it's just not... A healthy productive way to try to navigate the world and make decisions definitely and we were talking a little bit earlier about the term sample size you know if you have a sample size of of one uh one thing that is concerning in a lot of conversations that i have is the inability to understand sample sizes that's extremely important in statistics i think i was on one of your lives once and i was listening to uh, somebody that came on, they were, you were talking about like the U.S. education system, and you were talking about like how important it is to understand the sampling sizes of things that determine the statistics that you're trying to cite. So, like, obviously, I don't know what our what our population is. It's close to like 380 million. Uh, you wouldn't want a hundred person sample size to determine the statistics that you're going to provide to the vast majority of the people that live right. in the country, right? 100 versus 383 million is substantially different, right? You want to have yeah. a huge sample size if you're trying to perfectly represent the United States population. That's true. The larger your sample size, the, the more it, it will match with reality. I read a book about statistics this summer called The Art of Statistics, and most of it just was up here and I was down here. So we, what you can do, it's called like random sampling, right? So like, if I wanted to give a number, like a figure for what is the salinity of the Pacific Ocean, you can probably get away with only measuring it in maybe actually 100 places. That's not going to tell you that the average of that number will be the average salinity content of the Pacific Ocean, right? Now, in some places, like where there's a river running into the Pacific Ocean, it's not as salty in that one spot because it's fresh water, right? But the average right. is that. So that's what we want with a survey or, or whatever this is. I don't know theoretically what the minimum number for a good random sampling would be for that. But then the other problem is knowing how to randomly sample. And at one point I did know how that works. Like if you're gonna do a survey, for example, rank the states according to population, 
California would be number one. I'm pretty sure Wyoming's dead last. Let's just say there's 40 times as many people in California than Wyoming. I think that's pretty close. You don't just pick 40 random people from California and one person from Wyoming because that won't be random. Like they won't be randomly sampled. And, and I don't remember how to do that, but it's complicated. It's very complex. Yeah. It, it is. And, and I think a lot of the time we want to boil down statistics so that we can make sense of it. It's counterintuitive. You know, statistics is is supposed to um, bring light towards like very complex situations. Yeah, uh, but it's very unintuitive. Like I have an example. Let's say there's a, a cancer that affects 1% of the population. There's a test that's developed for it, and the test is 95% accurate. A random person from the environment is plucked and they test positive for the cancer. What are the odds that they actually have it? So there's a few different things going on here, but we know the test is 95% accurate. Mm -hmm. We know that the cancer only affects about 1% of the population. So we pick a random person. The odds that they actually have it is, I believe, less than 9%. That's so weird because the test is 95% accurate, but you have to mm -hmm. factor in how rare it is and it works better if you like see a picture of how this works. I'm not going to describe the math because I don't know it off the top of my head. I just remember that that specific example, the actual answer is like 8.9%. And so, yeah. yeah, these statistics are important because I don't remember if I said this in our little meeting before the podcast or during it, but people don't think in equations or data. We think in stories. And yeah. the simpler the story, the, the more effective it is, the better it is. And so that's where for the millionth time, we need these objective, depersonalized, unbiased mechanisms for trying to describe things. And nothing in the universe is more objective than math. No, that's the <laughs> that's the bare bones. <laughs> if you if you're denying physics, then all you got left is is math. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have some exciting news. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics have teamed up to create Ecolite Apparel. Ecolite Apparel has a direct focus on the environment with a sustainable approach to fashion. We came up with a way to combine fashion, sustainability, and education. Firstly, our apparel is sustainable because it takes advantage of organic materials with a blend of recycled materials to combat the waste of the fashion industry. So speaking of fashion, each Ecolite product has a significant environmental symbol, such as reduce, reuse, recycle, planting trees, saving the bees, commercial fishing, and much more. Everything Steam and Elite Graphics are going above and beyond to provide you with more information about sustainability and environmentalism through the use of Ecolite. Each piece of our apparel will contain a scan QR code, and when you scan this QR code, it takes you to Everything Steam's research blog that is specifically about the symbol on the clothing that you purchased. So let's say you purchased our t-shirt with the symbol for planting trees. Your t-shirt will have a scan QR code that will take you directly to our plant a tree research blog where you can learn about the many benefits of trees, global deforestation, reforestation acts, and what you can do to make a difference. Last but certainly not least, with each purchase of Ecolite, we pledge to donate $2 to nonprofit organizations that are on the front lines of fighting for our ecosystem. We plan to target reforestation nonprofits and other organizations that fight over fishing, plastic pollution, air quality, and much more. To purchase Ecolite Apparel, head to the Elite Graphics website, elitegraphics.org, or make your way to our sponsors page on our website, everythingsteam.org. So, do yourself a favor and get yourself some Ecolite Apparel, the clothing line that combines fashion, sustainability, and learning. 
Ecolite, clothing done right. We should probably round out the episode, and I really want to get your takes on this, is how you go about these arguments or these conversations with people who have these denials or these conspiracies in your your live events. What are your tactics? What do you like to do? And what do you commonly see? I have all kinds of data that I can use to back up my claims. But so I used to, when I started doing this, I thought I would just like list scientific facts and, and that'll work. But like it works for people that already agree with it and people on the fence, maybe it would be effective. But what I more so try to do now is I try to analyze the way that they got to their conclusion, like their way of thinking. We talked about this with Flat Earth, where I just go through their model and show how it just can't make any sense of anything, right? Mm -hmm. What I usually do is, is I just try to dissect their way of thinking. And if I can, try to get them to admit that it's not consistent. Or um, even if they are consistent, then be like, okay, but the conclusions don't follow the premises. Like the idea that everything that's created has a creator. We don't know that one of your premises there is true, right? So it's gotten more to trying to analyze the way the thoughts were formed. And I think that's educational. Like even if somebody doesn't care that much about science or whatever, hopefully they can understand how the scientific process works and why it's why it's valid and can be trusted. It won't always be right, but it's valid and can be trusted. So that's what I try to go over with these people. And then there are important things to point out, like a, like a burden of proof. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will say to me, like, well, you haven't disproven my alternative claim. And it's like, I, well, I agree, but you can't just assume that something is true until it's been disproven. What well, what we should do is we should apply like reasoning to see if the explanation is any good. So you use what's called like Bayesian reasoning. Mm. And that's like with aliens, right? So did aliens build the pyramids or did Egyptians build the pyramids? So the most logical way to think about this would be, okay, none of us can travel back in time. So none of us will ever objectively know. So we can agree on that. You agree? I agree. Okay, good. So we should try to use evidence as best we can and apply it to one of our explanations. What evidence do we have that aliens have visited Earth? The pyramids. No, that's an argument from incredulity. You're saying it had to have been aliens because you don't have an alternative explanation. I have the explanation that Egyptians live in Egypt and we have found all kinds of tools. And there are some diagrams of them, like not necessarily building pyramids, but like you know, doing the kind of work. It's not miraculous, does not violate Occam's razor, and it's parsimonious, meaning it has the fewest number of assumptions. And I, I'm not pulling on anything for which we don't have any data. So that's why, to me, Egyptians built the pyramids using mechanical advantage is by default, it has to be the most likely explanation. I don't know exactly how they did it, but it has to be a better explanation than it was aliens or something like that. And this is also what I do for evolution, because people will tell me, like, life can't come from non-life or something like that. It's like, okay, well... Your alternative explanation is probably going to be some form of creation or whatever, like some sort of miracle or whatever. So how is that supported by anything? Because there were no witnesses. I know it's written down in some books, but Adam didn't write the opening lines of Genesis. (laughs) 
obviously that doesn't make any sense. Even if he did, that wouldn't prove that those miraculous events transpired in exactly those ways. So I tell them like, look, we know so much about the way life works. You can define it in all kinds of ways, but life is just what all living organisms do. They metabolize carbohydrates and they phosphorylize ATP. You know, there's nothing miraculous taking place there. Every single thing about that is just chemistry and physics, chemistry and physics, chemistry. That's all life is. So I don't know. Nobody will ever know for certain how life evolved, just like nobody will ever know how the pyramids are built or how the Great Wall of China was built. But the idea that life evolved out of just these chemical systems in the water, probably around a hydrothermal vent, is a rational evidence-based explanation because it's based on everything we know about the way life works. And it's not, it, I'm not pulling on anything outside of that. So I don't believe in the idea that life was seeded here by comets because that wouldn't even, that would just explain how life got to earth, not where life came from. Um, I don't believe that the Xenu aliens injected sperm into volcanoes, which then erupted and then the volcanic ghost sperm impregnated monkeys and then they became humans. That's Scientology in a nutshell. It's shockingly similar to that, actually. So okay. is that a better explanation than life gradually evolved here on Earth? No, it can't be in principle. None, none of the other ones can be. Like they claim that their idea is better because in a way it's sort of like hyper-specific. Like we mm. know who the first person was and he was formed from clay and God was there and, and whatever. But it's also completely nondescript. It has no explanatory mechanism for how anything happened. It's just the claims. Yeah. Whereas I'm telling you, the particulars, I don't know, but I'm not really claiming that I do. So that's another common argumentative tactic that I never really noticed until fairly recently is when I'm debating with somebody, I, I tell them, I try to ask them, give me your explanation then for how it happened. And what they instead focus on is telling me, you don't know where life came from. You don't know when it, you don't know what the first organism was. And I just very recently had this conversation. I kept telling the person, stop telling me what I don't know. I asked you to tell me about your explanation and they can't do that. So that's a really good tactic to use to try to flesh out like, hey, yours isn't really based in much of anything other than just believing it. Yeah, believing it in face value with, no causal evidence whatsoever. Yeah. It's not necessary. Real quick, we kind of already talked about this, but like people say like, you weren't there, you don't know, or it can't be observed, therefore it can't be proven. Mm -hmm. And I've been meaning to like make some videos about this. Like when people say prove, they actually just mean find some evidence for. Like the guy who I talked to about the Great Wall of China, I told him, I don't really believe this, but I'm just going to claim it was aliens. And you think the Chinese built it. You can't prove me wrong, can you? No, but we each know that my explanation is not better. In that case, we can both see it. Now apply that same line of reasoning with where life came from, for example. And that's where the that's where the failure occurs. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you also see where people jump points a lot? And maybe we, we did talk about this a little bit, where you said like how, well, you know, prove to me that that the that the Earth isn't round, and then they're like, "Well, you know, you don't even believe in the moon landing." Well, that's obviously yeah. jumping points, and that goes with any sort of argumentative platform, like with a set point in mind, right? That can be kind of tied in anything. 
this is this is another very important skill that I that I picked up just sort of subconsciously. I do not let people change the subject. Sometimes they'll just scream into the microphone and filibuster the conversation. They'll just rattle off five different things while I'm sitting there saying, stop changing the subject. Tell me more about the first thing you said. But I don't let them do that. And I don't think they realize that that's what they're doing. They're trying to prove their point by gish galloping and saying 10 different things at the same time. And when you don't let them do that, a lot of times they get extremely frustrated. And then, yeah, they sometimes they just say 10 things at the same time because somehow they think that's piling evidence on you. That's not really what you're doing. But a lot of times the subject gets changed because they've run themselves into a corner. Mm -hmm. They don't maybe consciously know it. It's their subconscious being like, change the subject. It's a defense mechanism, right? So some hilarious examples several months ago, this flat earther I used to talk to named Nick, there's like five different occasions where we were talking about something and he would just yell into the microphone, why does it rain? It should never rain according to your globe theory. I was like, we're not, why? We weren't talking about that, but yeah, I mean, evolution deniers and flat earthers, mm. they do it all the time, cha changing the subject, so. Oh yeah, I was, I was actually listening to one of your lives recently and there was a guy that came on and he in like one stint talked about dark energy the fine structure constant he was trying to argue like with the big bang then you guys switched into i don't i don't even know there was just way too many things that were kind of mutually exclusive and i'm just sitting there laughing uh because he was trying to pull up you know like a youtube video to talk about the fine structure constant but yeah I was just so confused on where are you going with this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's I, obvious. The changing the subject, I'm just kind of like, ah, yeah. And it, it lets me know that pretty sure I'm winning the conversation. We'll do it all the time. It's just, I wish I could think of more specific examples off the top of my head, but it's, I think intuitively people can, even without examples, it's, you know, think back to the times where you've had conversations with your uncle at Thanksgiving and yeah. he just, talks about four random things when you started talking about, you know, gender versus sex. And, and he goes off in a, in a whole different tangent. Yeah. So if for some reason you watch the news, like the mainstream news or whatever, which a lot of it is kind of garbage, because the format is just so stupid. Like, well, we only have five minutes because we have to we have to sell opioids during the commercial break so that we can keep the lights on. So you get you get five minutes to describe why your explanation for what we should do with the most monumental infrastructure proposal ever given or the most monumental foreign policy decision ever made. You have, you have five minutes before we sell opium to the masses. Go. And so it's literally just the most idiotic soundbite type stuff you've ever seen. So the reason I bring that up is because if you do watch that kind of stuff, what you'll find is a lot of whataboutisms. A whataboutism is kind of changing the subject in a way, because yeah. some people say like, well, your candidate said we should deport all ethnic people or whatever. Well, what about when when your candidate ran a red yeah. light? And it's like, okay. Or or like when they try to like point out hypocrisy, like, well, yours does this. Whataboutisms are, are kind of the same thing. It's when you can tell that one or both parties are just like not being honest in the conversation or even just trying to get personal 
you know, like personal attacks and, and what, because they have no, oh, yeah, I get a lot of those. Yeah. No logic left. It now it's just, okay, I'm going to throw an emotional appeal at you. Yeah. Ad hominem attacks. I, I get those fairly regularly. Uh, we, we talked about a few of them before. It's not exactly an ad hominem, but people like say to me, you just want to worship the, the universe or something like that, or you hate God, um, or who hurt you in life. It's like, <laughs> you're not, you're not a mind reader. You don't have that power. Uh, so just stop pretending that you have that gift. Nobody does. I'm not even claiming to be super special, uh, but you definitely don't have that gift. And if, if you're attacking me and not the idea, it's because you can't attack the idea or your ideas are weak. So it doesn't <laughs> bother me because to me, it, it, it's just a sign that you're losing the argument. You don't really have anything. People ask me like how I put up with it. And it's like, you know, I used to be very quick to just scream that you're a bad person or you're an idiot, but it's not productive. And I guess I've just sort of gotten used to it, but also it, it doesn't help you. Like I care that people learn and maybe they're going to forget all the scientific facts, but hopefully they, they learn how to think. And that's something that I hope that my channel does. I focus on science because that's my, my passion. But hopefully it's showing people, you know, like the logical fallacies and what actually is more statistically likely or probable or whatever, and recognizing those fallacious alternative arguments. You know, I was going to ask for a closing statement from you. I think that was the closing statement. That was pretty good. I like yeah, that. In the, middle, in the middle of it, I was kind of like, this, this sounds like the, uh, the clo my closing statement. So. <laughs> I appreciate you know, you've taken the time to be on the podcast and talking to me about the things that you faced and, you know, shedding light on logic and illogical arguments. And it's been a great time. Thank you. Yeah, it was a good conversation. My pleasure. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. I just wanted to take a quick second and thank Eric for taking the time to share his knowledge and expertise. Definitely make sure that you check out his content on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find him by searching Planet Peterson. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, marketed by Courtney Page, QC by Panya Bitterixit, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against those algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search Everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to Everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.